and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and across the podcast, I'll be interviewing leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to explore the opportunities, challenges, and rewards of working in clean tech. From revolutionizing solar panels to overhauling the way we move, in this second season, we'll be exploring the innovations that are sparking sustainable change and fueling a cleaner, greener future, whilst offering some tokens of wisdom to enlighten, engage, and inspire everyone to live their purpose. So today's guest is a leading force in engineering. She has recently, after three years as a board member, become the CTO of a fuel cell company. They're a world-leading developer of low-cost, next-generation fuel cell and green hydrogen technology. In her early career, she was awarded a PhD from Cambridge. She gained extensive experience of F1 working at McLaren. And then, more recently, she spent three crucial years as CTO of Babylon Health during a very interesting time in the world. Alongside these incredible roles, Caroline also has another MedTech board role. She's a trustee of a charity, which I hope she will tell us a bit about. She's a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, was previously a visiting professor at Oxford. She won the CBI's first Women of Engineering and Manufacturing Award in 2017 and was named one of the 50 most influential women in engineering in the UK deservedly culminating in receiving a CBE for services to engineering in 2020. Fairly impressive track record. So we've had some fantastic people on the show, but this is really exceptional. So Caroline, welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech. Hi, Jen. I'm really happy to be here. Fantastic. So moving on, today is a bit of a double whammy. So not one, but two exceptional women. Um, I have a co-host joining me today. Um, Emily Hart, she has recently joined Brightsmith and moved into the world of clean tech, but someone I had the privilege of spending four years working with many moons ago before she moved to Australia. And now she is back to join me and I hope will be a regular co-host on the show. So welcome, Emily, as well. Thanks, Jen. And hi, everyone. I've been listening to the podcast for ages, so I'm so excited to be here co-hosting. And what a guest for my first show. So moving straight over to our guest, Caroline, would you like to share a bit about yourself with our listeners? Yeah, well, after this intro, I feel a little bit um, overwhelmed. Um, Yeah, I guess my background is uh, is very much, I'm an engineer. I've spent more than 25 years in in engineering after my PhD. Um, I started off lecturing at university, but this wasn't me. Um, I just felt that after four years of doing this, I really wanted to be doing the applied work rather than the research work. So I moved into Formula One. I really enjoyed my time in Formula One. I have to say I had a most fantastic job. I helped um, develop the first Formula One simulator. And so it was great because, you know, it's a first of a kind. It brought a lot of the stuff together that I like doing, which was uh, doing simulation, but also working with people to help solve problems on the, the sort of perception side, trying to convince a driver that they're driving a real car is quite a challenge. It's, it's like a really, really deeply precise video game, as people, my colleagues would say, but actually it wasn't a game in the sense that we absolutely use it to make uh, important design decisions for the car. And it, it was just great. I, I just really, really enjoyed the experience. And I did this for many years, 10 years in total. When uh, we had the opportunity to then start a, a technology business that would apply some of the Formula One work that we did um, to other industries, it was great because it, this was the year 2008 and we were getting ready to host the 2012 Olympics in London. And so, you know, it was absolutely fantastic that we got to also work with a number of Olympic sports, applying a lot of the Formula One philosophy and technology for data analysis, data processing, data capture, as well as some aerodynamics and so on. So for for sports like rowing, um, cycling mainly, um, canoeing and sailing. And we also helped on the winter sports two years later for the Olympics 
which was uh, mainly in bobsleigh and skeleton. These were projects we did on the side, but my goodness, it was good fun. So when you have a, a job that you like so much like this, we, we did tons of projects. You know, a lot of them were, were not in, in the Olympics area, obviously, but they were in health area, applying again the same type of philosophy that you do in terms of health monitoring of a car to actually human beings from a perspective of remote monitoring and applying the, the sort of analysis of data and seeing what you can do. And, and also in terms of uh, work we did with Oxford, which was um, through simulations and simulators that they, they use in uh, surgical training to understand how we could help train surgeons more quickly, for example. And these are all things that you might not think they're, they come from Formula One into anything, but but actually a lot of the that underlying technology is very similar. So I was blessed with really interesting projects, one after the other. And it, so it's really hard to decide what next once you've done something like this. But actually, I like the purpose. I like doing projects that had an impact. And, and not only did we do these kind of projects, we also were involved in the Formula E and doing the sort of electric or electrification of motor racing. And, and that also I found fascinating. So in the end, I ended up, you know, when I went, when I left McLaren working in health, but joining a board of a clean tech, these were my two loves. And what I've done recently is actually swap the two and I'm doing my day job in the clean tech and continuing on a board of a, of a med tech because I find that both of those are things that you know, I have a passion for. And if you have a passion for it, your job is not a job anymore. It's kind of, it's something that I wake up every day wanting to, you know, at times there are days that are difficult, but but you want to do it, you know, and I feel that I wish everyone found jobs like that, that they want to get up for. I often ask people that when I interview people, what gets you up in the morning? Because if you can marry what gets you up in the morning to the job you do day to day, my goodness, you you then help others with your enthusiasm and and. And then it becomes a, a bubbling effect where it's not, oh, my goodness, I've got to do this today. It's, right, how are we going to solve this? And it's that different mindset and shift. If you can work with people like this, it's energizing. And that's what you want to try to, to get to. You want to find what, what gets everybody ticking. So I've been, as I said, been, been blessed that in my career, I found these jobs where I, I love. <laughs> so that's... Very long answer to your question. No, an amazing one, though, and I absolutely agree with that, definitely. And I know you mentioned there you sort of switch from lecturing and more into your passion of um, engineering and motorsports, but going back to the early years and the classic what do you want to be when you grow up question, um, I don't imagine a CTO of a fuel cell company featured, but did you always know you'd do something technical? Yes, I think... Early on, right, I didn't know what an engineer was, by the way. So I thoroughly sympathize with all young people who don't put engineering as top in their priority when no one, if you don't have any role models in your family, and it's not that my family put any barriers, there just weren't any engineers. So, but I went through a process of elimination. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, I'm not really, you know, not that kind of person, not that kind of person. What I love is solving problems. So I talk proactively with, so what's a problem solving career? And that's when people said, well, that's engineering. And that's kind of how, but even then, when I studied, I studied mechanical engineering and I did a math degree as well because I was edging my bets. I wasn't sure. I knew what math was and I didn't know what engineering was. I thought, well, what if I don't like engineering? At least math sounds like something I like. And actually what, what happened was I just thought, oh, as I was doing it, that engineering was what it was that I liked. And math was getting more and more theoretical and therefore less what I wanted to do because I like solving problem, real world problems. That's another reason why I've continued throughout my career to talk to schools and and, and uh, kids who, are, who don't know what engineering is, trying to tell them what it is, because I wish I'd had somebody coming to my school telling us about it, because it was only because I was quite driven into what I didn't want to do that I found engineering. But it could have been that I 
would have done something else and maybe been not quite happy with what I've done it or it's like a, a longer route into finding what I wanted to do. I'm a little bit jealous that I didn't find that route because I did the maths degree and it was a little bit too theoretical for me. So hey ho, I love what I do now. But you know, yeah, having having those role models I think is key. And um and knowing what engineering is. And I think actually that's one of the massive barriers that we have. And particularly for young women, is that it's not necessarily something that's raised for them. And looking at kind of how you went from that process of elimination and your studies to where you are today, what was it about clean tech that really appealed to you? Actually, from an early age, I'm of the generation that we heard when I was a kid about acid rain. So that shows my age. But, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness, this is not good. You know, it was something, it was a problem that, you know, hang on, we need to do something about it. And f- so from an early age, this idea that we need to help, you know, solve some of those problems was there. And, and I had the advice at the time from one of the teachers was when I started my degree at uni and, and I, I thought, mm, should I do an environment course or something like this? And we didn't have those courses but this lecturer told me, well, you know what, if you have a really good tool set, if you equip yourself with a really good understanding of engineering generally or solving problems, you'll be able to attack that problem. So you don't have to have necessarily a degree in in something with a final application. If you have a because it, the degree is your is your learning to learn, learning to learn about the subject, right? What we all do in our jobs is not what we did in our degree, but the degree prepared us. For this. And, and I think this is something we all need to understand is that if you have a passion, just look at what are, what are the right things that you put in your Swiss army knife of skills that might get you there. It, it may not be something that is thoroughly aligned, but then your passion will get you there eventually after you kind of get. But if you put yourself in the, in the mindset of employers that I can do now, now I didn't do that then, but I, I do look for people who come into this with different backgrounds so that they, they offer a different perspective. But ultimately, they need to be good at what they're doing. You know, that, that passion is, is there, but you want a skill set. You want to bring that skill set in. So I think it's, it's, it's this idea that even though I wanted to do something for the environment, which was more like a generic thing, I'm glad in the end that even though it was the most you know, roundabout way <laughs> of going to it, I'm still glad of that advice because what it meant was I could rely on a solid background that allowed me to apply for these jobs that were interesting. And actually, you touched on something I was just about to ask about that kind of how you don't have to have a career path that's in a straight line. And actually, you've had that of the experience of motorsport leading you into healthcare, but also seeing lots and lots of different things along the way. And, you know, on paper, you might not be that person that would be the fuel cell CTO. But actually, in reality, all of that experience and seeing it from different sectors, different perspectives, understanding the different applications of what you're doing makes you the perfect person and leads into how like, how is it going? How are you settling in at Ceres? How like it must be a real change. I mean, you were at Babylon in the height of the pandemic working on something that was changing every two seconds. And now you're, you know, a bit more of a long term mission, but a huge amount of purpose in that mission. Totally. I, I think the uh, the interesting about what we're doing at Ceres is that it's, and I'll say it because it's not my area, it's complex electrochemistry. And I arrived to this and thinking, woo, okay, this it's complicated. Luckily, we have a lot of experts, you know, fantastic. Well, the point, the point is that it is hard technology. And what has stopped it in the past is that the materials, either some rare earth, which is not a good idea, or expensive ceramics, just means that the cost of doing this particular technology has been a bit of a barrier to adoption because Let's face it, we don't pay the full cost of fossil fuel energy. We don't. You know, there's a lot of subsidies in the system. Now, as things are changing, and COP26, thankfully, has brought this up, and we need these kind of times where 
it's in the public consciousness and some of the economics need to change and technologies like what we're developing it's not unique to Ceres in the sense of people have been doing fuel cells for some time but what what we all must do and that's what Ceres is now doing is tailoring the best application for this type of technology so that it becomes commercially viable in this area and helps us decarbonize that sector. And we need many of those. You know, Ceres is doing one thing and it's fuel cells that are based on solid oxide technology. And that's in the particular niche that Ceres has is that it's, it's using steel, ceramics on steel, something that still is cheap you know, in the overall things in, in comparison to ceramics. And, and it also means that we can run in a certain temperature range that we get advantages of using ceramics, but we get the the advantages of using steel in terms of cost. And in those areas, we feel that it will work very well for certain areas like steel production or marine industry, where these are hard to decarbonize industries but looking at all the, the, the pros and cons of the different um, fuel cells and electrolysis technologies out there, we're, we're not all competing for the same application. You know, there are some that are very good in cars and automotive. Some are better in industrial application where there's heat available or heat needed. And that's where we come in. When there's heat available, suddenly the, the efficiency of the system goes high and that extra efficiency means you can do this in a cost-effective way. And, and that's our challenge, is we're trying to do complex chemistry, making it work so that it can be done at scale and economically. So there's you know technical challenge, there's manufacturing challenge, and then there's the, the kind of commercial adoption that we need to do. And the good news is that now I think people are aware we need to do this commercial adoption for the sake of the planet, but we still need to solve the technical and the manufacturing challenges. And it's, you know, it's really interesting. It's, it's hard, but it's interesting because you know that when we achieve this, what it will have as an impact. What's hard to some extent for Ceres is that it's not necessarily going to affect you and I on our day-to-day. No, we're not going to go and buy Ceres' technology tomorrow for our house. But if you can say, well, we've helped decarbonize the steel that is used for the manufacturing of stuff that you use every day, then suddenly that's great. But it's going to be like that. It's going to be one step removed from what people buy. So it's not we're not the next Apple. Um, And so when we're recruiting people, we've got to explain what we do a bit more because we are working with within other products, essentially, and in that chain. But if we can say, you know, if we look at the marine application, it's something like 8% of our CO2 is comes from marine. You know, that's globally. It's enormous. You know, so it's not like it's niche or it only affects, you know, a little bit. It's it's big. It's just not something that we encounter every day. So hence why it's a interesting and 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 motivating areas to work in, but we still have to explain it to people, you know, new recruits and so on. To understand, so they understand where that technology fits in. Definitely, and that's—I know you briefly touched upon that, but this was what my next question was going to be. And I guess the main aim of this podcast is to share the insights of experts in the field. So, to the listeners who don't have too much knowledge around fuel cells, how would you explain the sector and the potential impact it has on our planet? Yeah, so a fuel cell essentially is is a, it's a really interesting system that that turns molecules of a gas into electricity so so far what we're used to to produce electricity will be something using either like water in a turbine and something turns and turns into electricity or something like diesel engines which will be firing a generator which there's there's a combustion so there's heat there's combustion and then this heat is turned into electricity and all of those are well known and used everywhere in the world, but a lot of them, as we know, are really not very uh, good for the environment. What fuel cells do is you put in a gas. Now, if you use hydrogen, 
that gas mixed with air, if you think H2, which is your hydrogen, and you mix that with air that has a lot of oxygen in it, um, the good news is that by doing this combination of the two, you're producing water, H2O, out, but also releasing electrons in the process. And by doing that, you're, you're creating some electricity. And you're doing this for one little cell after one little cell. And what we do is we, we stack a lot of those cells into a bank of cells called a stack. And then you stack those stacks together. So that's how you make this big. So one cell doesn't produce very much. But by the time you have a stack of them, you can do five kilowatts of, of electricity. In a fuel cell like ours, it, it's good in the sense of it produces something over a long period. So ideally, you, you use it to power, you know, and, and people do use fuel cells to power, say, data centers. You know, data centers are really, really power hungry. And a lot of them are powered by diesel because they don't want to put them on the grid because they take so much energy. But actually, you can do that. So if you think about, if you think about our technology, for example, is that you can feed it hydrogen and then you get no CO2 out. But we don't have that much green hydrogen at the moment. And the last thing you want to put is really dirty hydrogen in it because it's not going to help you overall. So what we can do, though, is either mix hydrogen with, say, um, natural gas or use natural gas directly. Now, if we do that, we're still producing CO2. I get you, but we're producing a lot less than if you were to burn it. And when you don't have combustion, you have a lot less of those knocks and socks, which are byproducts, which are really bad for us humans to, to, to breathe in. That's what the big scandal for diesel was about. But it's also, if you don't have that combustion, you're, you're producing about a third less of CO2. So not only is a fuel cell useful when you have the hydrogen available, which we will get there, but this is, this is a long time frame. We can also start using it to reduce our carbon footprint straight away because we can use it with, with natural gas or, or syngas, biogas. You know, we, we can put a lot of it in and reduce our carbon footprint. So it's, it's not only good for net zero, but it's good as a transition technology. And then the great news is that you can run it in reverse. So if you're next to, say, a, a windmill, uh, wind power, and you, you produce, you put green energy in. So you, now you think in reverse, you have electrons coming in and you have, say, your water in, or in this case, steam. So you want to, you want to bring in hot water essentially with some electricity. You then break out your, um, oxygen and your hydrogen. And suddenly you are creating green hydrogen if your electricity comes from renewables. And it's exactly the same cell can work in both directions. So the good news with this is that that means that the technology that's been developed for years and years and years in fuel cell mode, we don't have to go back 20 years of development to then advance also the electrolysis side. But again, electrolysis has been around for like 100 years or more in an alkaline fashion. It's just we couldn't make it to be competitive from a, from a cost perspective. And we, we really should now. And all of those different technologies of electrolysis are needed as well. As I said earlier, R1 is good when you have steam in. If you have steam in, you use a lot less electricity because a lot of the electricity is to take your water and turn it into steam. So if you have steam in, you suddenly have really good efficiency to run it as electrolysis. But if you don't, but if you're in a desert somewhere and you have solar power quite cheap, then you can also produce electrolysis in different methods. And you wouldn't use our fuels, our electrolysis, for example. So, you know, it's horses for courses. And that's what a lot of people have got to understand is they, they try to pit one, you know, fuel cell technology against another. And it's not really that. It's about saying, is fuel cell technology is it the right one for that application or this one for this application? So it's a bit like Tesla and saying, you know, we're doing this, but what we really need, we need a lot of other companies doing EVs because we need an infrastructure and so on. It's the same for, for electrolysis and, 
and fuel cells, when they're, the more they are out there, the more people understand what they are and how they're used. And, and it's actually benefiting every single um, fuel cell and, and electrolysis manufacturer. And I think that's such a good way to look at it. Um, there's a huge amount of investment needed in the sector generally, but it's also great to see that you're right. People are not seeing the other fuel cell companies as a competitor. They're seeing them as a friend in the field who are doing the same thing. And if everybody isn't pushing in that same direction, actually none of them can succeed because some of it's about that buy-in. And like you say, the consumer often doesn't see it because it's one step removed. So actually the whole industry advancing and getting more investment is really, really crucial to, to everybody's success. And also then kind of looking at the wider sector, the success of the, the energy transition, which requires all of these different technologies, fuel cells, electrolysis, but many, many more to all advance so that we can stop the, um, the fossil fuels and also get to a point that hydrogen is more readily available and, and we don't need to produce any carbon from the fuel cells. Exactly. And sort of going to back to you, um, obviously this is kind of close to your heart, but is there anything that, that specifically motivated you, be that somebody, something? Um, I know a lot of people tend to find inspiration from individuals. Is there anyone you've worked closely with or, or even seen from afar that's really inspired your career? That's a really good question. I would say my most influential person career-wise was my PhD supervisor. And, and partly because he was inspirational, not necessarily just on the technical side. He was someone who I found could put things in perspective. And he taught me there are, there are steps towards stuff that you want to do. And how do you think about those and, and maybe do things exactly to your point earlier that may not be in straight line, but will be useful and go and explore and go see what might might you like in something. And his view was was always try not to change too many things at once when you're making a, a movement. Because if you change everything, you, you end up so much out of your depth that you might not have say the, the courage or the 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 motivation to really try you know, everything different. But if you keep some of the things different, for example, I know this area of, of engineering but I've never worked, like in my case, when I first moved in Formula One, I had never worked in Formula One. And there's a lot of people who've been wanting to work in Formula One since they were like five, right? And that wasn't me. I was interested in it, but I wasn't passionate to the point that I was obsessed by it. It wasn't there. But, but his point was, well, you know, if you've got a skill set that they need, you'll be more valuable to them than just a, a passion with, without that. These kind of pieces of advice builds your confidence. And to me, that's why he was so important to me, is that he could build my confidence somehow with the right, the right things he said, the, the right measured approach, but yet fueled the passion at the same time. I always looked up to him, but I never felt that he put anybody down. He was so bright, he didn't need to do this. But at the same time, he was, he was a sponsor of you. And that's, that's interesting, you know, I think we all need sponsors and those people who are influential in our life, they're those sponsors. They're the people who believe in you and, and tell you why and might open a door or two for you. And that's like so valuable. And if anything, I, I think women, we all need to do this to other women and to turn around and say, so who's the next person I can send a ladder to and say, come up and try this door and try that door. If we all do that, we will help women get into areas which there are very few of them because I'm not blaming men if they're not doing this or, or, or even know who have male colleagues who tell me, how can I attract more women in my team? Which is brilliant, but if you don't already have a network, it's hard to then to do those connections. And we all need to help each other do that because it's, it, that's it. I think when we're younger, we feel more in competition with everyone. I, I think I've gone beyond that now that I realize actually collaboration is what we need. For some reason, we're drilled into competition because you have to get into a university, you have to get into the next thing, you're fighting for funding. And so it's always competition, competition, competition. But actually, 
we're successful by collaborating with others because everything we're doing these days, it's a lot of people's brains together that, that brings any type of, certainly in the science and technology world. Naturally, we want to collaborate. That I think everyone wants to be successful as a team and we all want to. And fostering that, but having that these role models, come back to role models again, but having these role models of people who encourage you to do that, who put you in a situation that opens doors for you to do just that is so important. And he was just so key, David Newland, like super professor uh, that I met at the right time in my career. And, you know, to this day, um, he's, he's, he's always been in my heart. Unfortunately, he died last year. Um, but I still think about him regularly. And it's like, he would do that. Like he would, you know, he, he's just that kind of person that I, I kept in touch with at irregular times in my career, but always enjoyed those interaction. And if I can do a tiny bit of this myself, I'll be, you know, I'll be pleased. That's lovely. He sounds so inspiring. So inspiring. And you mentioned there about going into, I guess, motorsports without any background and experience and all the sectors that you have been in. I can imagine it's not always been plain sailing. Were there any other challenges that you've had to overcome to get where you are? Joining motor racing when you're young and you're a woman is interesting. It certainly was interesting uh, 20 odd years ago when I joined because Well, there weren't many, so you stand out for one thing. But also, again, like I said, it's filled with people who see this as almost a a vocation. People joined us because that's kind of... And a lot of people then, and I still think it would be the same today, are in it for life. And now there's many, many other jobs that people change all the time and so on. And you will have a lot more of that these days. But Formula One still seem to attract people who they may change jobs and change teams or even maybe not work for a team anymore, but work for a company that is related to and will provide services to a Formula One team because, they, you know, it is quite exciting. It's adrenaline pumping, right? You've got races all the time. The race that we had, you know, with, with Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen this year, you, you know, there's a lot happening and it's you know it's televised and so you know there's a lot of of uh, pluses to take but on the flip side when you're quite new to it it's daunting and in at times I certainly felt I needed to prove myself with my male colleagues but I think some of that in hindsight but only like now can I say this uh, was probably put by myself I probably thought worse of that perception than what my, my male colleagues thought. But it was my reality at the time. I certainly felt that I needed to do this. And therefore, if anything, it made me work harder at my job because I felt, well, the good news with doing something like engineering and technology and so on is you have hard results. If you can show something, then you say you can point, you know, yes, I've solved this problem, or I've moved this on and whatever. So the fact that you have some objective mark of, of your, you know, your ability to do a role is helpful. And I think in some areas where it's a lot, lot less objective, it's probably harder for women to, to show that they can do something. Because if it's so difficult to really prove that, yes, you know, I've done this and, and therefore, see, I can do this job. So in some way, it should be easier in engineering to, to show this. But if you're not feeling comfortable in a team and you're not feeling fully supported, you won't perform at your best, right? So we've got to try to put ourselves in the shoes of women joining teams. And and a lot of the time, it's still today, still at Ceres, we, we have more and more women joining, but there will be women on their own in a team. And they're, they're the ones we really have to make sure that they feel totally like part of the team, that they shouldn't be seen because you stand out because you look different, right? Okay. So, and, and it's the same, not just with women, but all sorts of diversity groups. But without them, we're, we're weaker. You know, without the diversity, we're weaker. And therefore, proactively reaching out to people it, and men who do that well are so, so valuable. And, you know, men want to do the right thing. 
again, you know, it's we we can blame them, but but it, they're not to blame really. Most of the time, is it's unless we help them and work together, that the situation doesn't necessarily change very much. But you know, I felt over the years at McLaren that I was more and more. I I felt at first I was tolerated, then I was accepted. Like it's like going through different changes, different states. But actually, I look back, and probably a lot of this was was my perception wasn't quite equating the perception of some of the men around me. But the good news is, as I got to more senior roles, is I made sure that we started more networks. So we started a women group at McLaren just to get to know each other more. And again, if you've got more networks within a company, you're more likely to be happy because you have people to chat about. And at the time, you know, pre-COVID, you'd bump into each other. And, you know, you don't just go and strike a conversation because you're two women in a, an environment. But if you've met before at something, then suddenly you talk more and and you make more friends. And we're social human beings and making more friends is important. So, you know, I, I think I'm becoming more nuanced in, in how I treat myself and my own perceptions when I was younger. And I probably was a bit harsh on my male colleagues, but it certainly that's how it felt. It sounds like you've certainly learned a lot about yourself along along the way, which is a good thing. And actually, you say two women don't strike up a conversation. I think we were probably two of maybe 20 women at the hydrogen event where we met. So maybe that was why. <laughs> um, so I, for one, am very glad. As much as it's nice to talk about the challenges, it's also really nice, I think, for our listeners to hear the highlights. I think looking at your career it's been incredible but I'd love to hear about the highlights and I would certainly love you to tell us a little bit about receiving a CBE which is fairly incredible and it doesn't happen to many people so I still quite don't believe that I got this so so it's obviously everything is uh, it takes time to kind of sink in and because of COVID I only actually received it this summer so not long ago and so it was a it was fabulous I mean it totally came out of the blue. So it is, it is nice. And if I'm hoping that what it does is it, it means that I have more confidence to go and talk to more women about it. You know, I know that the, the aim here is to try to put a spotlight on, on women doing this role, not just men doing it. But I actually think that this is not a bad thing. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of it. Great. Um, and of course, I would say this but to help do that transition. And, and I know, Jen, we've had that discussion before. We have to go the extra mile for, for the time that it takes to do this. You know, it, it is unless we make proactive um, decisions to, to promote the, the involvement of women, to, to, to really give a chance to women in roles that might not have been thought through before as, as um, or they might not... Women might not think they're ready for this or whatever. You know, give, giving them a bit of a spotlight is is useful. But and then you can see, well, okay, so you know, you want to get to the next stage. What do you need to do? What do we need to put in place? And when when you can say, well, look, you know, the good news for me is is at Ceres, I'm hoping that a lot of women there are saying, I can take her job eventually. You know, because she's there. And she's managed it and, and she's a normal human being and I've got kids and I've some, somehow managed to survive it. I'm not a superwoman. And therefore, hopefully, other women will think the same thing and thinking, I want to be there too. I want that, you know, that recognition as well. And I can do this. And this is why I think we need a few people that we put a spotlight on them and at all le- levels so that, you know, my next level, well, it's, it's fine. I can do this because, you know, other... And, some of it is subconscious, but we do need to have them there because otherwise it looks like the bar's too high often. And and it's not, you know, I haven't done anything superhuman to get to where I am. I've just continued and continued and doing it. And as I said, I've, I've been blessed with really fun work and therefore it helps. You know, I've never seen it as a, a massive hurdle to do from one thing to the next. But the point is that we want women to stay in engineering. They might do a degree and they might start off and then they have a career. They have a, they start a career and then they have kids and they may decide, oh, I'm going to go do something else. Well, it, that's also good if that's what you want to do. But if, if fundamentally you like what you're doing, having some role models of women who have done that, 
I've taken some time off and I had two kids and, and I, you know, I'm glad that I kept my toe in and it just meant for a little while I did pretty well, you know, duller work, if I can say that, because I wanted to spend time with the kids. And then as they got older and started school, I started ramping my work again. Just knowing to do that, it was helpful for me to talk to women at the time and saying, how did you manage it? These conversations are vital because it gives you insights to how, as an employer as well now, we think, what can we do to help and retain that female talent? Because having you know, a break and having kids, if that's what you want, we shouldn't be embracing that, you know, and we should, and we should do it for our male employees as well so that their partners can actually continue their careers. And that's what I was most proud of, if I can say that at McLaren, is when, when I, when I reached a, a technical leadership role, I had a bunch of guys in my team and all of the ones who had kids we agreed on days that they would, you know, drop their kids off to school before they came into work. And so it wasn't, they took their part and it happened kind of organically because you could see me do that. It was okay for them to do that. And by them doing that, it just propagates, you know, then it, it it's like a permission. You can do this, right? And you need a few people who do it and are visibly doing it to give that permission to others to do it. Because actually, if you can do that, my goodness, you become more interested in your work because you think they care about me. I'll do this. It always goes both ways. But until you have people doing it and giving you kind of that permission, because Formula One was very much you come in early, leave late. But, you know, we wanted in the technology business, we could be a bit more flexible. But to do that, we needed to be openly flexible. Now, COVID has changed things and we're working from home and, and so on. And that will hopefully opens more avenues to that flexibility remaining there forever. But that wasn't the case before. And I think women suffered more from the less lack of flexibility. So sorry, I really kind of <laughs> went sideways on your answer, though. <laughs> no, that's really good, because that was our kind of next two questions, I think, that you answered perfectly. So yeah, you've anticipated the journey through this podcast very well. <laughs> And it's also nice to hear that you've had those experiences because I think sometimes we hear the opposite and we hear the horror stories of the companies that don't support people, whatever it is, whether it is maternity, paternity or with kids where you have more challenges, whereas it's really great to hear that you've you know, managed to maintain that level of your career, kept progressing and felt really supported by your colleagues. And it sounds like your teams who work for you, which is, which is great to hear. And I've been fortunate enough to have the same with having two male business partners who are both very understanding and family driven. And I think, you know, finding those homes where you have that is, is fantastic. And I guess that brings us on to kind of work you've done, not just with your own kids, but with other kids. You've, um, you're working with a charity, which sounds like is doing some fantastic stuff. And I think we've touched a lot on women, but it would also be great to hear about kind of more broadly, how you've gone about inspiring young people to follow their passion and purpose? Yeah, um, I'm involved in a, in a charity called the National Saturday Club. And the point of this is to bring creativity to kids because the first thing that goes off the school curriculum is anything creative because we are these days measuring so many um, steps in, in the performance of our kids that teachers concentrate on what they're going to be measured on. This is invariably um, understood that this is going to happen when you're saying this is what you're going to measure. But the flip side is what about the kid's discovery of what, um, what it's like to be creative, innovative, and so on. And you can do that in many different areas. And these clubs, what they do is they promote this by having no exams, no nothing that is official officially kind of um, right or wrong it's just you're working on projects with um, inspiring people on a, on a Saturday of your own time and it's free for kids and we we are trying to to attract kids from backgrounds that don't have that opportunity normally at school or through school clubs and the idea is, to, is that they can work in sort of the arts more traditionally, like um, like theatre and so on, 
but they can also work in the sort of creative side of design and engineering often is seen or perceived as very mathematical. I know we talked about that before, but there's an element of creativity that is absolutely there when you're doing engineering. And we wanted to bring that out as well. So offer some clubs for kids that are kind of engineering focused in terms of the application but have the creative side that, that come out. And, and that is done through uh, also master classes and, and so on. And the kids all get to do, I mean, with COVID, it's been harder, but they all get to do visits of inspiring places. And, and that might be, you know, a design museum or it may be a um, behind the scenes in a theatre, for example. This is actually really technical. I mean, this is something that the UK is, enormously good at you know if you go see theater production it's unbelievably good but to do that there's so much creativity in just the set the lighting the 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 way the the actors get moved around and so on so it's not just in the play and the and and the performance itself of the actors but is everything behind the scenes as well all of those kind of uh, of potential or or you know there's there's a uh, fashion now there's a lot of creativity in fashion so these clubs try to bring a lot of those things together and uh, and they needed and wanted the input of, of trustees that came from all these different backgrounds. And I joined them a few years ago and, and I just love it because seeing what comes out of the kids is always very, very inspiring because kids unconstrained will come up with some amazing things. And, and what is good is that at the end of each year, they get to present what they do as Somerset House, when when we can, but it's it means that they come from anywhere in the country. There's something of each child is is exhibited, and it's good because not only are they proud, but the parents are proud of what the kids have done. And we need to do that link too, because if the parents are proud of that, it will add value to a creative mind. And if we take away the creativity, we're not we're stopping a lot of kids developing into what they really want to do because schools tend to de- develop the other skills but less the creativity. And a lot of kids feel left you know, left behind because they may be the more creative types that don't want to conform to the, the, the way that the school system is, is done. So that is the idea behind this, is to, is to try to keep this, this creativity awake and, and alive in all, in all these kids and hopefully send them towards a career that has got something creative about it and keep our economy going on that score because ultimately we're good at it, but unless, again, we nurture it, it it's not going to happen. And, and this is very much targeting kids from any background. And, and that's, the, that's our challenge. And if we can more people involved in it, that's great. Because they're our future, right? And moving on to the future of clean tech, what do you see happening in the coming years? This is the decade of the clean tech. I think it's it has to happen now. Like it, we have imperative. The climate is in crisis, and it's now. It's not tomorrow. It's not next decade. It's this decade. And I'm saying decade because it these solutions don't happen very quickly. But it's a snowballing effect that we need to make sure happens along all the different sectors. If we get our act together on the technology side, that we we offer a number of solutions to it. I know it it can look bleak at times what's happening on the climate, but actually on the flip side, I think engineers and, and, and scientists are rallying up to come up with more and more technology solution that now we we then need the rest of the infrastructure to adopt it. We need the the right incentives from a policy perspective. We need the people willing to to take that leap. We need the the managers in all different companies to to also insist that that company becomes greener and set their own timeline and explore their own technologies that will help them. It, It has to be a a whole effect across the the uh, across the board in the, in our um, different communities as well as you know 
nationally and internationally. So it, to me, clean tech is it. It's, it's happening now. We're, we're developing technologies for it. And we have to remain optimistic that we can do this and therefore attract the best minds onto this. Because if there's one problem that needs to be sorted out right now is how we you know, decarbonize the planet. So if, if anything, we need, that's why I love to do you know, this podcast because the more bright minds we can encourage to join this area, the better it is for all of us. Definitely. Your your journey itself is inspiring, but I would echo that those people out there thinking about how they can make a difference. And actually going back to your previous point about creativity, I think so many people who are creative think that their career is limited to a certain area, but actually every industry needs creative people and every industry needs people who can think of new ways of doing things and challenging the status quo. And I think clean tech generally is doing that. So normally we ask you for a final thought, but I think that is almost the final thought is that, you know, if you're that creative person and you want to do something that makes a difference and you want to have a career with purpose, I mean, you really are that perfect role model. So I think we need more Carolines. (laughs) It's my final thought. (laughs) But thank you for sharing your story and also for having that kind of additional go the extra mile where you help children you know, you're really spreading that message, but you're also supporting people who come from underrepresented groups in the workplace and making sure that everybody feels like they're part of the same mission and purpose and pushing in the same direction, because that is what we need as a society. We want people who who want to make a difference, but understand the power of collaboration and the need to do that. So thank you for joining us, but also thank you for, for everything that you've done for for the sector and for the planet. Um, and I'm sure you will go on to continue doing. And Emily, thank you for being a wonderful co-host and supporting me when my voice is breaking. <laughs> um, it's been a very insightful discussion, ladies. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I've loved it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Clean Tech brought to you by Brightsmith. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others to find the show. For more information on Brightsmith and how we can help you to build a sustainable future through identifying, attracting, and retaining diverse talent, head over to brightsmith.com. Join us next time for more Conversations in Clean Tech.